So session one was highlighted in red, that was yesterday, but session two is highlighted in red because today. And uh, as you can see, the theme is very, very clear. The idea is like, how do you love Christ more than the things in our lives? That's really important, right? Not just love Christ, but love him more than anything else. So that's kind of where we're headed. So we're going to do field, oxen, and marriage because it comes right out of Luke 14. And then tonight, we're going to talk about um, how Abraham was able to sacrifice his one and only son, at least, you know, willingness to that. And that's going to, that's going to be a really good message tonight in terms of looking at our most prized possession and having a willingness to even give that up, which is really not easy, right? And we'd be surprised what our most prized possession can be. You know, for Abraham, was his firstborn, right, his oldest son, and God asked him to, would you give this up, right? That's where we're headed. And then finally, only God satisfied is going to be Sunday morning. I think you're going to really enjoy that message. We're going to talk about marriage, actually, in, in quite a bit of detail. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and read, um, read God's word together. When one of those at the table <clears throat> with him heard this, he said to Jesus, I'll read it off this. <clears throat> he said to Jesus, um, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? For he is not able, he will send a delegation while this other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Um, when... Um, when Paul and I were in dialogue about the retreat and, and the messages that he really wanted to hear, you know, for this retreat, um, I mean, we talked about a lot of things, but I, I, I love his kind of exhortation. He said, don't hold back. Like, give it all, right? I mean, like, challenge us. Give us your best. 
I love that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a coach. I've coached wrestling before. I'm an athlete. And so I, I love the challenge of, like, why don't we go for the gold? I, I mean, if we don't get the gold, fine, you know, but let's go for it and make all the necessary sacrifices. Um, our family motto is actually never give up. I mean, we've taught our kids from the very beginning that's our Che family motto, right? Um, and, and even to this day, this idea of perseverance and not giving up is, is significant. And I want to just share with you as we go through this passage just to begin to think, like, where are we in, in the level of our commitment to Christ and to the people in our lives? Because they're related, right? As we, as we stay strong with the Lord, that translates into what we think about our marriages. You know, that translates into how we do our businesses. So I want to really encourage us as we get into the text to really, really look at, you know, how committed am I really following Jesus in every area of our lives, or do we have these really good excuses? And we're going to look at those excuses, by the way. There's a lot of good excuses in this text. And here's the first that we see. <clears throat> a field, five yoke of oxen, and marriage kept God's people from the kingdom of God. I mean, that's really what the text says. All right? Verse 18, if we go to the... But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field... And I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them. Please excuse me. This is because I have to look at both of these. Still, another said, I have just gotten married, so I come. I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. Now, the significance of these excuses is that these are not Sins. They're not saying, well, I got to go, you know, I'm going to go do porn, so I'm not going to choose the kingdom of God. I'm going to go choose, you know, drugs, so I'm not going to go be with God. These are not sins that they're choosing. These are good things, legitimate things in that society was, was legitimate reason for not doing some other things. So, for example, like if you look at Deuteronomy 25, 7, the officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home or, or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. So, so people who are supposed to go to war, if they actually bought a house, they were excused from going to war. So people in that first century, you know, when Jesus is telling the story, right? What, what he's saying is like, I, I understand that, you know, buying a piece of property is a legitimate excuse not to go to war. We understand that. Jesus, I understand that. But when we start to make those excuses, those good excuses for, for not doing what God wants us to do, he's actually itemizing that as a danger. And he's saying, look, be careful. These are good excuses. And he continues on with the others. Uh, he, as, as anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it, let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home and he may die in battle and someone else may marry her. A piece of property, a vineyard, and, and marriage. These are legitimate things that I think all of us are, wait a minute, what's wrong with these things? These are good things, yes. And Jesus points out these things as like, look, these are really not legitimate excuses. We may think they're all good things, but really this is keeping us from intimacy with the kingdom of God, with intimacy with God. So in many ways, possessions and family can keep us from the kingdom of God. Now think about that for a moment. I mean, every, I mean, you know, sometimes I talk to my daughters and, and little girls, and 
it's interesting. Little boys don't think this way, but little girls do. They, you know, they actually think about their wedding day. They actually think about the person they're going to marry. They, they actually think about their family. It's kind of ingrained in them. It's normal. It's, it's, a, it's a legitimate thing to desire. For, for maybe a lot of the guys in the room, it's like, wow, I want to provide for my family, and I want to take care of my family. I want to get a certain kind of house and a certain kind of zip code, make sure my kids are educated so we get that edge. You know, I want to be the provider. I think those are all like, what's wrong with that? And yet, Jesus itemizes these things as excuses that keep people from the kingdom of God. And I just want us to kind of like weigh that a little bit and maybe even expose it a little bit to begin to think, wait a minute, wow, is, this, is that why I don't feel that intimate with God? Is that why I'm feeling a little dry lately? What this tells us is that we really do need to be very, very intentional about the way we live our lives. Is that commitment that we have to the Lord strong? And how does it show up in tangible ways so that when there's a competing allegiance, when there's a competing rivalry, we're able to say no? You know, one of the things that uh, we're doing in our household is to really reaffirm the definition of love. You know, you know, the, you know, the Bible has many definitions, like eros is the Greek word for the love that you have for your spouse. It's kind of this passionate love. You know, phileo is that the love of, of um, you know, brotherly and sisterly love, right? And then there's storge. That was a new one. I never heard about that one. Storge is like a parent's love for their kids, right? But the most beautiful one is agape, right? I mean, I, I mean even if you're not a church person, like that, that word kind of gets out there. And I don't know if you've ever looked up that word in the original language, like what it literally means. It literally means it's, it's a love based on the decision of the will of the one who is loving for the ones who they want to love, but they have no, no uh, ability to, to love back. I mean, that's literally the definition of love. It's like a decision of the will to love someone who can't love you back, which is the way that God loves us, right? Early on in, you know, I came to faith in 1989, uh, July 1989, and, and, you know, this is at Bethel Church and everything, and, and I don't know how and why, but somehow that got in my bloodstream. Like, in those early months, I just remember looking at that love. I was like, man, that's the most beautiful word I've ever read. It's like, wow, it means that? To really love somebody, or the way God loves us, is a decision of the will. Based on, you, you decide to love somebody. It's not based on your feelings. It's not based on what they've done for you. It's really your decision. And I remember being so excited about that in the early years that, that when Helen and I were dating, you know, and it, actually, I guess it was, what, four months in, because I proposed after six months, if I recall, right, honey? The math is good there? Six months. Three months in, right, I, I said the most unromantic thing to her, but it was the godliest thing I've ever said to her. And I said this, Helen, I have decided to love you. <laughs> Just like that. And she didn't really know how to take that. She's like... All right, wait a minute. I'm hard to love? Like, you don't feel for me? No, no, no. I've really been getting into God's love, like agape love, which is the love of decision of the will to love somebody, irregardless of their ability to love me back. I just, I'm just so enamored. I just want you to know I've decided to love you. Well, that was the most unromantic thing I've ever said to my wife. She's like, I don't really know how to take that. Because, I mean, she didn't really know how to respond. And she's like, I'm marrying a guy that decided to love me, but it doesn't really feel for me. That was her paradigm, Right? And so, you know, those of us who have been married a couple years, like, like the first couple years, you're feeling it, right? There's that honeymoon. It's like, whoa, my goodness. We really lucked out. We got each other. You know, I, I mean, Helen would say, well, you, that ended. Uh, you, you, we were still not in our honeymoon. But I mean, we joke about that. But generally, year after, about year, after year three or four, that kind of fades. Now, you may still be in that. No, we still have those feelings for each other. Bless you. All right? <laughs> But I think in general, those feelings fade, and it's almost feel like, wow, I'm not feeling it. 
And you don't feel like saying I love you all the time because you don't feel it. And guess what? That person is not acting in a loving way. So you almost feel like, well, I, I don't know if I want to say that that often, right? And this went on for, for years, really, right? And then, you know, we hit some rough patches, right? We go through life and our kids grow up and, you know, there's kind of inequitable time where your wife is spending much more time with the kids and you're out and doing your thing and she feels a little short-suited, Right? And so it was kind of hard, you know. We'd go through these kind of marital squabbles, and it was tough. Like, you're 10, you're 11. So as we're kind of having one of those conversations, you know, Helen says to me, Dave, I've decided to love you. I just want you to know that. (laughs) It was like touche, right? But I got to tell you, it's really worked for us. As, As unromantic as that sounds, it's really kept us at the right place. Because you know what? You have expectations for your spouse. You have expectations. And it's like, man, I'm only going to love you until you do that. And really, that's in us. That's what it means to be a human being. It's conditional. And so Helen and I try very hard with our kids and with each other to communicate this irregardless of how bad we've been, how evil we've been, how selfish we've been. And and we have these tangible... I don't know, little tokens of love. I remember in the first couple years, like we'd be on, I'd be on all these ministry runs. I'd come home late. And I, I knew that I was like crossing the line. I was, oh my goodness, I'm coming home late again. And you know, like maybe Helen's sleeping. Is she going to be? And she would literally, like this was her token of I still love you no matter what. Like she would, she would um, lay out my toothbrush with like tooth, you know, toothpaste on it, right? And she'd let me know, hey, I, even though I'm sleeping, even though I, I'm not happy with you being late, I want you to know I still love you. So every time I'd, I'd come home late, I'd be like, oh, is that toothbrush there? I hope that toothbrush is there. <laughs> I hope that toothpaste is ready to go. Because I didn't need to brush my teeth, but I'm just saying, man, I just need to know, man, do you love me or not? Like, do you still love me, right? It was the best. And I was faded after a while. I mean, we, I, we, couldn't keep, we couldn't keep it up. But you know what we do now? You know what we do now? Like, one of us will usually get up earlier than the other, right? So... So <clears throat> once uh, the other person gets up, the other person's still sleeping, right? And if they get up, what we do is we make the bed, right? And you know how, like, after you put your pillows down, you have those, like, what is those, the backseat cushion things, right? We always put that on there, right? So really, this has been a good run. I think the last couple years, we've been really, really good, right? So, like, at the end of the day, when I come home, it's like, hmm, is our, is our bed made? Even though, I, you know, like, like she got up first, right? And really, it's been really good. Now, sometimes it's really hard. I can see like a piece of the sheet on my side is a little bit unraveled, I said, but it's still generally pretty good. I go, whoa, she must have been really upset. <laughs> I go, I'm pushing it. <laughs> I'm really pushing it, right? But my, my, my challenge to you, do you have something like that in your marriage right now? I'm serious. Like, you may think, oh, they know I love them. Oh, they know. I don't know that. Is there something that's a tangible reminder to your spouse that no matter what, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how bad of a dad you've been, no matter how a terrible husband you've been, there's something that says, you know what, even though you've been bad and I don't agree that, and you're selfish, this and that, there's, you can make a decision of the will to make that bed. You can make a decision of the will to squeeze out that toothpaste and say, okay, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling love-free, but you know what? I still love you. Could you imagine, like, if we as Christians took the lead on that and the world began to watch the marriages that we have and said, man, I don't get it, man. Half the marriages end in divorce, but these guys, that's unbelievable. I mean, think about that, right? That's the way it should be. And I want to encourage us this morning 
That if the basis of your love for another human being, for your kids, for your spouse, is a feeling, generally a feeling in what you see them do or not do, I want to encourage you and challenge you. That's not the way God loves you. That's not the way you want to love each other. Right? You can decide to love the person next to you. You you can. You don't have to feel for that person. You don't have to like that person. You don't even have to love that person. (laughs) But you can decide to love that person, really. And guess what? The feelings eventually come. I mean, have you found that to be true? Those of you who've actually done this, let me, let me, let me give you, this, this is actually a decent example. I remember back in Bethel, this is my other church, right? Um, you know, sometimes you get invited over and you kind of do stuff. And, and so we got invited to this one couple and uh, we were having, like we had dinner and then we had ice cream afterwards. And, and I just made the cardinal sin mistake of like, you know, as I'm eating ice cream, I kind of spilled it on the carpet. It was like brand new carpet. And I just remember the, the scowl response I got from the host's wife, right? I go, oh my goodness, you know. Like she couldn't hold it in. It's like, man, like, I, I, the, I'm just thinking the worst. Like, what are you doing, man? You, like, you can't even eat straight. I don't know. I just thought the worst about myself because like, and she just had this like scowl on her face. Like, what the heck are you doing to my carpet, you know? And like, I just never forgot that. And then, you know, years later, like we're, we hadn't interacted with, with this couple at all. And, and years later, like, we got invited again, right? And, and I said to Helen, well, I don't I, know, like, do we, like, you think we should go? <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't go. She goes, no, no, we should go. They're like our friends. I know, but do you remember the last time, like, this happened? They had that, like, like scowl look when I, when I spilled that ice cream, right? And she goes, no, no, we should still go. Like, she was helping me with unconditional love, right? But I wasn't feeling it. Well, guess what? You know, we went, and we had an amazing time, right? In fact, we just, you know, kept hanging out even some more, and the, the feelings I didn't have for them because of that incident actually came, and now they're one of our closest friends. They're like, wow, praise God, right? I think, Crossway Church, that if you have relationships like that where kind of there's a metaphorical scowl against somebody, I think you should actually go and decide, you know what, no matter what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do because you know then the power of God kicks in. You know it wasn't you. And you said, glory to God. It was an opportunity for us to praise God when we interacted with it. It was so cool to see the love come together. And it's like, oh, how are your kids? Are your kids? And, we, and we're like really close friends now. But I think it was because Helen was insistent that we keep hanging out with this couple. But I got to tell you, in the beginning, it was like I had that picture of that scowl because I dropped that ice cream on the carpet. I go, dang it. Oh, she hates me. Oh, my goodness. But we just kept going, and she didn't handle it against us, right? So I think that's how love is supposed to work. All right. Now. The, um, uh, the, the next section on this <clears throat> is the reaction that, we, that, that God gives when we put him second. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the pork, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what, would, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Now, I'm looking at that first part of that verse, and I almost want to pretend it's not there. You know, it's like the owner of the house became angry. Now, we know in the story the owner is God. Well, why would he be angry? I thought he was this loving God. I thought he was this compassionate. Like, really? He's angry? If If God is angry, it's not because he's abusive. If God is angry, it's not because, oh, he's so sinful. No, he's angry because there's a justice side to it. That, that, that there's a, a, a righteous indignation that we feel when we see, you know, we hear about 10-year-olds being raped, you know, for human trafficking. We just get angry. It's like, how could that happen? When, like other human beings, it just gets us angry, right? So when God gets angry, it's not because there's kind of immature, flippant, you know, anger. It's like, man, 
Like, these are my people. Like, I'm inviting them to things to, to be with me, and they don't want to come because they've got all these other gods that they're worshiping. Man, that gets me upset. I think we need to hear that a little bit. I, it, kind of a godly anger is what I think you need to sense when we make excuses to be with God. And I just want to let that settle in a little bit, that, that, that when we choose things over God, we move God toward anger and miss the opportunity to feast with our Heavenly Father. Now let that sit a little bit. You know, maybe we're a little different. You know, those of us in the room, and as we read the scriptures, oh, wait, that's, come on, man, that's, that's not appropriate. What do you mean God's angry? Yeah. He would be upset if he's calling us to live this, this sacrificial, you know, Christ-centered life, and we make all these, like in our minds, a legitimate excuse. Well, I just kind of bought a new house. I'll get there. Or I just got married, or it's, it's our anniversary, or this and that, and we just have these great excuses. I'm going to let the Lord just kind of, you and the Lord, relate on that, on that point, okay? Large crowds, they're traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Again, I, I almost want these passages not to be in the Bible. I do. I mean, I, I sometimes feel bad. I was like, man, I love, I love my parents. I love my kids. I love Helen. Like, what does this mean? I, like, of course, it doesn't mean literally that we're supposed to hate them. It's a hyperbole to communicate a point. That our love for God is supposed to be so supreme, it's as if we hate our parents. Right? Our love for God is supposed to be so supreme, it's as if we hate our kids. It's as if we hate our spouses. It does not say we hate our spouses or hate our kids. The idea is that the, the, the love that we're have, supposed to have for God is so supreme and so exclusive, there ought to be this gap. In fact, that gap isn't this miniature gap. It's supposed to be a chasm. It's supposed to be so distinct that everyone is supposed to be able to tell, wow, that person really loves God. Wow, that person is really like, like committed. That's the way it's supposed to be. That the love gap, that the love gap between God and family is supposed to be a chasm. This is, this is, this is the calling of every follower of Christ. It's supposed to be like this. Does that mean we abuse our kids? Does that mean we abuse our spouse? No. What it does mean is that our identity is not in the success or the failure of our kids. What that means is that, is that um, your, your spouse's job is not to... to to kind of make you look so good that the whole world thinks like you have this amazing marriage, right? The idea is that how do we follow God so purely, so well, that there's not even a hint of codependence. There's not a hint of, of, of family worship. There's not a hint of kid worship, right? There's not a hint of like, wow, you know, they'll do anything for their kids. You know, that kind of sense, almost kind of a, a weird cynicism, Again, you've got to ask the Lord, how do you meet that balance? Because, I mean, we, I want the best for my kids. I want them to do well in sports. I want them to, to do well in, sco- in school and everything, right? Here's the strange thing. When you get strung out for the Lord and you create that gap, I actually see amazing things with families. Amazing things. Now, I'm not going to put um, you know, missionaries out there as this kind of like special group of people, right? But I've got to say, I, I have a few missionary friends, right? And it's consistent across the board. I mean, they're really strung out for the Lord. I, I really admire their faith. And, and it does, in my kind of opinion from a distance, it seems like there's a huge gap between what God is saying to them, what they're obeying, 
and like everything else. And I'm just amazed at like how their kids get into like amazing schools. Like they're, they'll be overseas in a third world country and then I'll, see, I'll hear about their like, oh yeah, the kids go to Columbia University. Like what? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that entire time they're going to these SAT classes and, and doing all these tutorials, man. Hey, what's, what's that word? Let's put it in the you know, SAT. So I, I just can't imagine they're doing that, right? I think they really trust the Lord and say, look, we're doing God's work out here and we're going to trust the Lord for our kids. And it's amazing. I mean, some of these kids are just... They're bright, they're mature, they're godly, but it doesn't seem excessive. It doesn't seem like the parents doted over them or kind of compared them to the, the next, you know, whatever, whatever, or, or, or gave them the edge because they sent them to a, a private school that costs like thousands of dollars, you know? The gap between God and family is supposed to be a chasm. It really is. And to illustrate this, like, you know, Jesus is, is, is amazing with illustrations and points, and he just kind of uses everyday, um, everyday things to communicate, uh, you know, his point. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him in 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, so now this is the part that kind of I, I was surprised at. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, why is that highlighted? In past years, in past ministries... I always thought that the interpretation of this passage was that, man, you need to count the cost. Like, consider the sacrifice. Before you make a major decision in your life to buy that car, you know, to buy that house or to move to a local, hey, count the cost. Can you afford it? Was really the main interpretation I used to walk away with. And then I looked at that last, um, last verse, verse 33, right? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's the summary verse, Jesus is saying, what I really mean by all these examples about counting your costs, what I'm really saying is if you're not willing to count, like, get everything, like, sacrifice everything, you shouldn't be following me. It's not, oh, by the way, when you have all, all these sacrifices, you need weigh it. You know, this costs this much, and this costs that much time and that much money. And, and it's okay if you say no to these things because you've counted the cost. No, no, no. His point is that, no, you, you count the cost so that you can get rid of everything or at least your heartstrings attachment to these things. Renounce them so that you can follow God. And so really, it's this. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's a similar concept, right? We're supposed to give up everything to follow Christ. That's the norm. That's the challenge that God gives us to us this morning. And many of us are really good at calculating cost. Right? How much our house will cost if we you know, take out a 30-year loan. You know? How much money we're going to have for retirement. So we take care of our family. And we take care of like, everybody, you know, our immediate family elsewhere. And, and, and all goods and services that we have. Right? Like the kind of education we want our kids. I mean, I think we're really good at that. But did you know that the counting of costs of that is not so that you could make a good materialistic decision? The counting of those costs, what Jesus had in mind, is that you're willing to give up everything. That even if your kids didn't get a great education, even if they didn't get into an Ivy League school, even if they didn't go to the, the, you know, the, the, the regional high school that has all the best scores, even if they didn't get in there, would you still follow me? That's the challenge of the scriptures. 
That's the challenge of the, of the name of the church. Cross way. The way of the cross. That's, that's supposed to be normal, and Jesus modeled that for us. Could Jesus have lived past 33 if he wanted to? Absolutely. Could Jesus carve out a nice existence with the Holy Spirit and God and this amazing community that never got outside? Absolutely. Could Jesus avoided getting nailed on the cross and shed blood? Absolutely. In fact, Satan tempted him. He said, look, I'll give you all this kingdom if you just bow down and worship me. The temptation was to get the kingdom without going to the cross. In some ways, I sense, whether it's Orange County or Northern Cal, that we want the kingdom without going to the cross. That we want all the goods and services, all the benefits of of being a follower of Christ and none of the sacrifices. Maybe today God is challenging you and saying, you know, maybe I need to trust, follow God and make the sacrifices. And what he's really saying is, I'm going to take care of your kids. I'm going to make sure that they are really well taken care of. I'm going to make sure that your, your greatest desires for them and more, I'm going to give to you. But that requires trust. And putting these other things that you think are so attractive and so things that you need, they're not as attractive as you think. Um, when Daniel graduated from high school, um, you know, we toyed with the idea of like this gap year concept, like take a year off and grow in maturity and then head off to college after that year, right? That's what we were thinking. And, uh, and so we kind of collaborated on this, and, and he agreed. I was, it was really cool that my son was open to that, you know? It's like, so we looked at YWAM, and, and, uh, and sure enough, you know, the whole DTS thing in Kona, Hawaii, rough life, you know, we, you know, we sent him out there for that, you know, he raised his own money, and so September of, you know, his graduating year was 2012, right? And the idea is you get trained from September, October, November, and then December you start your outreach, and he chose St. Petersburg, Russia, right, which is, you know, a tough area, right? So he went with the team, he had a leader, um, but we thought that a gap year for a kid like him would be great, because he'll grow in maturity, it'll be good for his faith, he's in an environment where he's really, like, are surrounded by people who are hopefully on fire for Jesus, right? So, so we just felt like, okay, you know, let's make that sacrifice, you know, that, yeah, he'll be a year behind, and, uh, but still, you know, we think this is a good sacrifice, and we had conversations with Helen's parents, and my parents, and of course, they were like, words, like, whoa, what do you mean he's going to miss a year of college? Like, no, he's got to, he can't, he can't go, like, we, we got to, like, you know, make sure he goes to college, so those, those, those concerns, right? And then we went back and forth, back and forth, and we agreed, okay, look, we should do this, right? We, saw, we thought that one-year deal to go away, make that small sacrifice was the, was the way to go, right? Because in our mind's eyes, like, you do that for a year, come back, man, head off to college, and, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna head off to a good school, and you're going to make us proud, right? He comes back after the first year, right, really inspired by what God was doing in his life, right? And, and essentially, right, announces to us, Mom and Dad, I sense that God is saying that, that I'm supposed to go for two more years with YWAM, right? I said, why do you sense that? You know? <laughs> he goes, well, you know, I've been trying to, like, listen to God. You know, you know how our, one of our family mantras is also to hear from God and do what he says, right? Absolutely. Like, that's kind of been my personal mantra for five years, right? And, and, and he says, well, I've been trying to do that, to listen to God and do what he says. I said, well, you need to go back and listen better because, <laughs> because you've already done your one-year deal, Right? Now we're off to college. Like, we, you know, we got to go to college. He goes, no, Dad, I've really been trying to listen to God and do what he says. I really think he's saying go for two more years, right? And so we got real secular. We got real, like, fleshy. He said, son, you know we're Asian, right? <laughs> we're Asian. Like, we go to school. Like, that's what we do. Like, what do you mean you're going to go to do missionary stuff? 
this is like embarrassing. They were pastors, family, church planners. Like, one year was cute. It was good. Good thing. I'm so glad you did that. What are you talking about? You're going to go off and do missionary work for two years. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to listen to God and do what he says. Like, now he's like, feeling, I'm making him feel bad for trying to be godly, right? I'm like, so we're like, oh, man, like, this, is, this is challenging. I mean, it hit us where we were. You know, he went to these good private schools. We're ready, man. Sending off to college, get good grades, come out of college, get a great job. You know, I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? So we have to let that go. We, let, we, we made that sacrifice. God, if you're doing this in my son's life, if you're doing this in my son's life, I'm going to trust you. That whatever college he eventually gets into after these years, that we're going gonna, gonna, gonna to trust that that's what you wanted for him. Right? So the next tour of duty was Uganda. He led a team to Uganda. And then after that, he led a team to South Africa, right? And so he recently came back March 2015. So he's back, and now he's headed off to college in the fall. He got his head straight. Now he's going to Baylor. Now he's getting, totally, totally, totally not. <laughs> totally not what I'm feeling. Like, he knows that. But here's the coolest thing. I don't see it as a, a payoff, but I do see it as just a blessing of God that we said, okay, we're going to, all right, let's do it. We're going to follow you, and we're going to trust the rest. <clears throat> so um, one particular, I forget which day, it, it was like he was leading this team to Uganda. And, and, he, and by the way, the way YWAM works is not, not all godly kids go there. In fact, parents send their ungodly kids there so they get all fixed. I'm serious. That's, it's, I'm sorry, but that's kind of the truth. So he had a team of people that were just a little bit off. In fact, in his words, it's like, Dad, I got this punk on my team. <laughs> and he doesn't do quiet time. He doesn't listen to me. Man, he's so disrespectful. Man, I just, like, it's, it, this is one of his emails that he sent over, right? It's like four in the morning from, from, like, Africa, right? Uganda. He's going on and on about this kid. And then what showed me that God was really working in this kid's life was when, about three quarters of the way down, he writes, <clears throat> hmm, I wonder if I was a little bit like this with you guys. I wonder if I was a little bit rebellious. I wonder if I was a little bit of a punk. And, we're, of course, we're responding, oh, ton, so you're just being too hard on yourself. You know, we're both like, but, but it was very interesting. That I was like, this kid, is he 19? This kid has a self-awareness that there's no way I had any, like even 10% of that. So what was God showing us? I think God was showing us, look, I, you follow me, right? You make the sacrifices to follow me. I'm going to take care of your family. I'm going to take care of your kid. Why would I, like, not take care of your son? Why would I not take care of your, your two other girls? Like, trust me on this one. And I got to tell you, as he went to, you know, Uganda and came back and he did South Africa, it wasn't South Africa, it wasn't easy. I mean, the emails that I, we were receiving back was like, wow, you know, this team is really hard. It was really hard. A lot of suffering, a lot of accusation from team members. <clears throat> but what was cool is, as we were getting feedback from other team members, and they got picked to me, and, and Daniel doesn't even know this, that, that what they appreciated about Daniel was that as he was getting all these accusations about why he was doing this, wasn't doing that, that all the team members noticed that he didn't, he wasn't defensive, that he didn't retaliate with like, well, you should be doing that, or you should be doing that. And I just, I was just really proud of my son, you know, and that, that he could have, right? I mean, who doesn't get defensive when you're criticized? So as I started thinking about like, wow, you know, um, if you don't, you know, if you don't um, hate it's, it, it, my, our love for God is as if we, don't, we hate our kids and our, hate our parents. I, I start to experience just a little bit of that. That our love for God is supposed to be so supreme that it's as if 
we don't even care about our kids. And for three years, I mean, we, we, I mean, what can we do? I mean, he's overseas. Like, we literally could not minister to him physically. But we said yes to the request because we felt like that's what God was doing, and we made that sacrifice. But what's cool is that we sent out a, a, we sent out a teenager to the mission field, and we felt like we got back a young man. Now, I want us to think about, in your life, what's the win? What's the win? What, 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 when you think of, like, success, <clears throat> I think it's really important, by the way. Most reputable companies have a very good idea of what success is. You watch any sports team, they know what the win is. I mean, it's simple, right? I mean, if you're watching the NBA playoffs at all, it's like the team that puts the, basket, the ball in the basket more than the other team, they win, right? I mean, that's the way it works. You know, in baseball, like, there's four little white bases, and the one with the five sides, if you cross that thing more than the other team, you win. In football, you cross that goal line more than the other team, and you kick your foot more than the other, you win. Everybody has a very clear idea of a win. I don't sense that with Christianity. Do you? I don't sense that most churches even understand what's a win. They might think, oh, wow, you have 2,000 people? Oh, God must have blessed you. Wow, you got a building that big? Wow, you must be a blessing. Whoa, that much in the budget? I think we confuse God's definition of win with our definition of win. What is God's definition of win? It's all over the scriptures. You can't actually miss it. Paul said it often. He said, you know, I strive to get the prize that I long for. I'm not quite there yet, but man, I give up everything to get that prize. Galatians 4.19, what did Jesus say? Paul says, I long, I, I, like, a, like a woman in labor, I long to see Christ formed in you. I mean, it's all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. When I started to see spiritual maturity in my kid, I cannot tell you how Helen and I both felt. We just said, there it is. Oh my goodness, that's the win. It's not how many people go to my church. It's not how well people think of me. It's not how big my church is. It's like, wow, somebody in my family is growing in Christ and they look like Jesus. That's why you have the name that you have, Crossway. It's because we're supposed to look like Jesus the more we pray, the more we worship, the way, the way we do our life is supposed to result in, in love, peace, joy. All the nine for the Holy Spirit, it's an increasing measure, is supposed to be characteristic of you. And when that happens, there's supposed to be a celebration. That audience is like, wow, you know, a year ago, that would have been a hard decision for you to say no to this, but now I see you making that Praise God. A year ago, five years ago, you would have taken, you know, you would have lived in a zip code where, where they had the greatest appreciation because that's just the way we think. But man, you're actually going to live in a zip code where there's marginalized people and you're going to get lesser housed, but you really are pursuing something that is of God and the kingdom of God. It's like, wow, praise God. We, we ought to be bringing those people up front. It's like, man, share your testimony. How did God work through you? That's the win. From Genesis to Revelation, if you really look at the Bible closely, the win is that when somebody is becoming like Jesus, it is worthy of celebration, and that should be the mark of every church, that they're growing in their love, they're growing in their peace, they're growing in their self-control, they're growing in their kindness and goodness. And when we see that character, that's right, maturity, that's like the best defense against Satan, by the way. I think, I think Satan hates humility. I think Satan hates to see sacrificing Christians. I think he hates to see someone really walk with God, a walk 
not a momentary, you know, flaring up of transformation at a retreat and that's it. And like Monday, Monday we go to our normal lives. No, no, no. I think what Satan absolutely hates is someone who actually walks with God on a regular basis and, and just say, man, I'm saying no to this temptation. I'm saying no to this. And actually walks with God and is growing in their love for the Lord and their love for people. And, and they just live this godly life. I think Satan hates people like that. So my challenge to you is, is what's the win? I'm not talking about your functional win. Your functional win might be, oh, man, I got, I'm really thinking about the addition on the house and I want to get in a certain name. That's your functional win. That's your, that's your theoretical win. I'm talking about your, 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 um, your biblical, godly win that you know in your heart of hearts and then that becomes your functional win, right? Now, Jesus can be your savior in the theoretical sense, right? It's like theological sense. But now who is really your operational day-to-day savior? What other people think? Possessions? That's a challenge. I think we need challenges of God. I have a theoretical and theological win. But you know what? God, my operational, functional win is something else. I need you to help. Could, could you help me to bring those two together so that my the- theological and my operational, functional Savior really is Jesus? That's called convergence. That's called, man, I'm walking with God. I want to challenge us this morning if that's not the case, if there isn't a chasm between your love for God, right, and the next best thing, I want to really challenge it. Well, God, help me to create that chasm. And then trust God for the results. Because last I checked, I'm not, I don't convert people. Last I checked, I don't transform anybody. God does that. Really? Right? God does that part. My job is to show up, you know, share God's word, love my kids, love my family. I, I set the environment. But God is the one that brings the results, right? You know, First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, you know, we water, you know, we plant, but God is the one that causes the growth. If you can get that straight, it's like, man, I'm going to trust God for the growth. I didn't grow my son. I didn't grow him spiritually. We just allowed him to go out into an environment where it was stimulating for his growth. But God grew him in that environment. And so in many ways, I want us to learn how to be environmentalists. I want to challenge you. How do I become an environmentalist? Jesus sent out his people two by two, right? And they would experience this ministry, and, and, and they would try to cast out demons, and they would heal people, and they learned how to do ministry. And then when they ran across something they couldn't do, like, like casting out that demon, they'd come back and say, Jesus, what was up with that? We, we were able to heal people and minister, but then this one person, we couldn't cast out the demons. And Jesus would go, oh, you need to pray for that one. He was setting environments all the time. Do you do that for your kids? Do you do that for your spouse? Do you do that for your neighborhood, right? Maybe have a block party. Ever think about having a block party? Praying like crazy. Having your entire church pray for those people that you haven't met yet. Throw a block party and just pray for the Holy Spirit's work. Because your job is not to convert them. Your job is not to transform. God does that. But your job is to love them. Bring the tri-tip. Bring the salmon, man. That's fun. Right? That's what I do. I'm an environmentalist. You know, at... uh, this second church that I pastor, I just took the job at May 15th, right? And it went through an interview process. And we got to the point about, well, you know, like, we have all these titles for senior pastor, lead pastor, minister, lead minister. Like, what do you prefer? Now, I was joking, but I was also, like, serious. I said, well, why don't you call me CEO? And they were like, what? What's that mean? Chief environmental officer. I'd be willing to be your environmentalist for your church because that's what I do. I do that for my sports teams. I do that for my church. I'd love to be that. Because you know what? Because the lines are very clear. Your, our job is to set the environment. And some people would say discipleship equals environment. Imagine if you did that for your kids. Imagine if you did that for your spouse. I mean, in many ways, Helen with the, with the toothpaste, 
was basically saying, look, even though you messed up, even though I can't stand it when you do this, but I still love you. I still love you. Could you imagine if everywhere we went, we set those environments, we didn't have to talk as much. And then all of a sudden, God works. I think that's all he's really doing. Now, what, what are the consequences? What if we don't do that? Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. I don't think this is, I, you can lose your salvation passage. I'm pretty sure it's not that. Right? Because believers, once saved, always saved. But I think what you could lose is your subjective experience of your salvation. That, that peace that we all love to have, right? I think you can lose that if you kind of you know, put God at the same level as all these other things. I think you can lose that. That seems sad to me, by the way. That as we walk with Jesus and we put him at the same level as our possessions, and all of a sudden we feel dry and everything becomes nominal, and I think that the uniqueness, you know, salt, of course, has several qualities, right? It adds flavor to things, right? But also as a preserver, it keeps the tide of evil, right? It pulls back the tide of evil. That's what we're supposed to be. That we're supposed to bring flavor to situations. But also, when there's immorality, you're, you're supposed to stand tall and say, well, we're not going to do that, right? That's, that's what salt does. It preserves morality. So really the challenge is you either use it or you lose it. Really, that's, that's the interpretation of that last section. You either use it, right, the salvation that you've been given, or God says, look, you can lose it. It's not even worth for the, it's, it's actually worthy of the manure pile. If you lose that saltiness, what are we going to do with you? So that's the challenge for us this, this morning. You either use it or lose it. And this is a discussion that we want to get into a little bit. I'm going to close this in prayer. But I would love for us, as we get in our groups, to take that seriously. If, if, there's a, if there isn't a chasm between your love for God and the next best thing, really think about, how do I create that chasm? Because that seems to be the norm. And the Bible says, I'm not worthy of being a disciple of Jesus Christ unless that chasm exists. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you've given us a great challenge this morning. We think of being disciple as like maybe a curriculum, maybe a course that we take. But you show us here a discipleship is really sacrifice and putting you at the top of our list. And that even our parents and our spouses and our family members are distant, a distant second. Now, I don't know what that looks like practically. I don't know what that looks like in terms of what we would do differently in our lives. But maybe that's why we have this discussion. Help us encourage each other in our discussion groups to collaborate, to actually have these be learning groups. And maybe come in not so much as experts, but come in as like with questions. Well, how do you do it? How have you been successful doing this? And as a result, we learn from each other. And then we learn to put you first in our lives and to make sure that there's that chasm between you and our worship review and even our love for our family members who we love and adore. But perhaps that love is too close to our love of God. Show us, God, that that chasm can be reached and that we can do that. And that's what the expectation that you have, that you've put that bar really high, that to be a follower of Christ is to love God in such a way it's as if we hate our parents and our family members. God, give us the wisdom to know how to create that situation in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.